That was a breathtaking miracle, wasn't it? A blind man being healed had never been seen before in all of history. There was no medical explanation for it. There was no natural explanation for it. There was no empirical explanation for it. This was a supernatural event that was instantaneous and complete. It was a creative work of the creator. Never seen before in all of history. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus' miracles are called signs. And John says that when we look at Jesus' signs, we shouldn't look at them and say, wow, aren't those signs amazing? We shouldn't just say that, but we should say, what do those signs point to? The important thing about a sign is not the sign itself, but the significance that it points to. If we look at a sign and we just say, that's a cool sign, but we ignore what the sign points to, then we are literally missing the point. You know that in everyday life. Uh, have a look at this picture. Do you think these guys have understood the significance of the sign? What about this next one? He may have missed the significance of the sign, right? The important thing about a sign is not the sign itself, but what the sign points to. Jesus' signs point beyond themselves to the deeper realities of God. And Jesus says, my miracle points to the deeper reality that I am the light of the world. Jesus' signs points to a meaning far beyond the healing of just one man. Jesus didn't come into the world just to bring light to one man, but he came to bring light to the whole world. Would those who witnessed this extraordinary sign, you can just see them standing there, just mouths wide open. They've seen the sign, but would those who witnessed the sign, would they recognise its true meaning? And the true meaning is not just a truth for those who lived in Jesus' time. The true meaning goes beyond the first century to today and into eternity. It is something that every person on the planet has to reckon with. What does it mean for your life that Jesus is the light of the world? Well, we're going to look into this story in just a few moments. Before we do that, we're going to pray. Uh, there are a number of things always that we need to pray for. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Uh, I haven't heard much about it, but it's 9-11 uh, tomorrow. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to pray for the extremist groups in our world and that uh, uh, the Lord would bring that to an end. Also, of course, we're going to thank God for the Queen who passed away a couple of days ago. And we're going to thank and pray for, thank, thank God for her, but also pray that uh, the leadership of uh, the church in England would continue um, with a believer um, heading that church up. Uh, and we're also going to pray for the newly elected 
Prime Minister in England. So there's a few things to pray for, so please join me as we pray. I'll also give you a few moments to reflect on some other things in your life that are going on. Father in heaven, you ask us to pray for the leaders of the world. Every leader is in your hand, Father, and uh, so we do pray for the leaders of the world. We do thank you for the Queen and her reign. We thank you for her humility, her grace, dedication and service to her nation and to the whole Commonwealth. Father, we thank you that she was a believer and in her own quiet, private way, she was a committed Christian and when the opportunity arose, she was speaking and testifying to her faith in the Lord Jesus. And Father, we just pray that the rest of the royal family may know you in a very real way. We pray for the Church of England, Lord, that your spirit would blow through that church and revive many. We thank you for her reign. We pray, Lord, for King Charles III and ask, Lord, that you might be with him and that you might guide him in his leadership role. Father, we pray for the new Prime Minister of England, Elizabeth Truss. We pray for her and we ask, Lord, that you would give her wisdom to lead. We pray, Lord, that she would lead with integrity, uh, one of the uh, important positions in the free world that she has taken up. Uh, we ask, Lord, that uh, she would uh, lead fairly. Uh, and we ask, Lord, that uh, she may come to know you. And Father, as we remember 9-11 and all those that died, Father, I want to pray for the extremist groups across the globe that are still active, the Taliban, ISIS, Boko Haram in Nigeria, Hindu extremist groups, Buddhist extremist groups. Father, we just pray that you would bring an end to those groups through mercy and justice. We pray, Lord, that you would save many within those groups, those who have been violated by these extremist groups, Lord, that they would find comfort in you. And Father, we just pray for those things that are on our hearts right now, those things that are going on in our lives. We bring them to you now. Father, we thank you that you are God that hears our prayers. We commit them to you in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord, as, as I speak this evening, Lord, that... Uh, you would speak to us through your word, through your powerful word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read from John chapter 8, verse 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. 
So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Please be seated. Jesus' opponents were threatened by his popularity and by his public denunciation of their leadership. And so they are out for his blood. And this leads to a confrontation on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. After Jesus made the most audacious claim of who he is. Now, as we saw last week, there was a ceremony called the kindling of the lampstands. And I won't go through all the details again. You can look at last week's talk. Uh, but let me just bring you up to speed. Every evening at the festival, uh, an apprentice was sent up the ladder, 25 metres high, uh, without a harness. That's why they sent the apprentice up. Wouldn't pass occupational health and safety today. And so he would go up that ladder. I think we've got a picture there. Go up the ladder. Let's go back to that picture. Go back to the picture before. Yep, up the ladder. And he would fill those bowls with oil and giant candles would burn all night. And uh, it would light up the whole of the temple with these imposing candles. And because the temple sat on top of a hill, the whole of the city would be illuminated. And the people would celebrate in the glow of the light and they would praise God and the this celebration would go all night until dawn and every night for seven days. So every nightclub in the city closed, but this was still going. And the light from these giant candles symbolised the light of God in the pillar of fire when he guided them through the wilderness, and through the darkness. And so it's against this backdrop that Jesus stands in front of these imposing lampstands and he says, I am the light of the world. This whole festival, it points to me. I'm not a light, which any teacher can claim. I am the light. And I'm not just a light for Jews. I'm a light for the whole world. And I'm the great light that the prophets, we heard that read this before, the prophets have been promising for 600 years, the prophet, uh, the, the one who's going to open the eyes of the blind, the one that's going to rescue those in darkness. He says, I'm that one. And he says, I am the light. I am the name of God in the Old Testament. Just as God was in the pillar of fire, right in front of you, I am in the flesh. I'm God in the flesh before you. Now, how do you think that went down with his opponents? No, they didn't like that one bit. They didn't like that one bit. And they say Jesus must die because he's made himself out to be God, which they deemed to be blasphemy, right? Dishonouring God. And Jewish law demands that those who commit blasphemy be killed. But if Jesus really is God, then how can he be guilty of telling the truth? It's no blasphemy to say you're God if you really are God. In fact, it would be blasphemy to say that you weren't God. And so they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Uh, Jesus repeatedly escapes arrest until his father's appointed time when he will be killed and he's going to be crucified 
not stoned, all right? Because he's going to fulfill scripture from 600, 700 years beforehand. Remember, his hands are going to be pierced. His feet are going to be pierced. That's the, uh, the way that he's going to die. And this was predicted before crucifixion was even invented. And so he slips away until the Father's appointed time. Now, we're not told how he slips away, but we, you, when you read it a number of times, it appears there is some supernatural intervention involved. We're not told what it is. I don't know. Uh, I don't think he you know, went invisible or anything like that. But somehow he was able to slip away. And he sees a, bl a blind man from birth. The temple gates were a popular spot for beggars because crowds of people went to the temple every day. Good spot to get some loose change. And even though Jesus' life is under threat from the Jewish leaders, he still stops for this man out of compassion. And I love this about Jesus. He does this same thing on the cross, remember? He himself is dying on the cross in absolute agony and yet he has time for that criminal on the cross who is moments away from eternal hell. He has compassion on him and reaches out and offers him salvation. Now I just imagine what it would be like to be this man. Imagine what it would be like to be blind from birth. How hard would life be? Hard enough to be blind today, but back in the first century, you're forced to beg. There are no, there's no social security. There are no hospitals. There are no nurses. There are no doctors to care for you. This man has known darkness his whole life. He's never known light. He's never seen his own face. He's never seen his parents. He's never seen a sunrise. He's never seen a sunset. He fully expects to go to his death, never seeing them. He has no hope that things will change. That's his life. But then Jesus shows up. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The Judaism in which the disciples were raised taught that if you're sick... It's because you've committed a bad sin and that sickness is the punishment for your sin. Remember in the book of Job, Job hadn't done anything wrong, but his friends came to him and said, come on, fess up, you must have done something wrong to, for you to have all this suffering. That's the way they thought. The rabbis taught that a baby born blind was the punishment for sin committed either by the parents or by the baby. Now, where did they get that from? Where did they get that idea? Well, they misinterpreted the Mosaic law, which states in Exodus chapter 20, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, the rabbis taught that this means if parents commit a bad sin their children will pay for it for multiple generations. Uh, and this idea of cursed generations has managed to exist even to our time today, even amongst Christians. But the principle being established here in these verses is that the sins of the fathers, meaning the leaders of the generation, right? The, the heads of a generation, the sins they commit 
that define the generation are so influential that they can't be reversed or rooted out for multiple generations. Right? Every, uh, a modern-day example would be, I would say, abortion. Leaders of a generation 50 years ago established this practice and it's taken 50 years to be able to reverse that because the sins of the fathers, the leaders of the generation, cannot be reversed or rooted out for some time. That's the principle. But they didn't see it that way. But how on earth could a baby be blind because of their own sin? How did they come up with that? How could they sin before they're born? Well, the rabbis developed the idea of prenatal iniquity or sinning in the womb. And there are some bizarre discussions which you can look up and, and find in the literature between rabbis on this subject. One wrote, when God said to Cain, sin lies at the door, in Genesis 4, the door refers to the door of the womb, apparently. Another wrote, you know when a baby is si sinning in the womb because they kick harder. They had to try and make sense of why a baby would be born blind. And that, they're trying to make sense of that. Jesus says in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. With one statement, Jesus completely obliterates that rabbinic thinking. Because scripture tells us that sickness and suffering are a part of our world, but they're there as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden, which God rightfully judged and cursed the earth. And as a result, all of us live now in a broken and fallen world, and all of us are susceptible to sickness. Sometimes illness is a direct consequence of sin, right? If someone gets drunk, jumps in a car, crashes, breaks their neck, well, that's a direct consequence of their sin, but it's not necessarily a direct punishment for their sin. Although it can be, because if you remember two weeks ago when Pastor Ben preached, Elisha's servant stole the silver and lied and he was, he was punished for his sin. Right? He had leprosy. So the relationship between sin and sickness is very complex, but what Jesus does here is he rejects simplistic cause and effect explanations. Jesus says in verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus only has months before he will be crucified, before he willingly goes to the cross for you and me to be saved. The disciples only have a number of years to live because they all give up their life, don't they, for the gospel, except John who is imprisoned. What Jesus is saying is, we only have a brief time while we can work for God, while it is day, while we're alive. When it's night, when we die, our opportunity to work for God will be gone. And in John chapter 5, just a little bit earlier, Jesus spoke, speaks about he and the Father working together, but here he extends it to his disciples and extends it to you and extends it to me. He says, you and I are in it together to work for the Father and to work for the Son. You and I are part of that we. 
We don't know how much time we have. Night is coming. And so there's only one thing to live for, and that is to do the work of the Father and the work of the Son. So Jesus says, get the sin out of your life. Get the, the uh, trivial stuff out of your life. Get the compromises out of your life. Get the worldliness out and do the work of God. Don't waste time because we don't know how much time we have. Stop doing those things that have no value at all in the future. After saying this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Healing miracles, if you know your Bible, healing miracles are incredibly rare in the Bible, right? Incredibly rare all the way from the fall to when Jesus turns up. They're incredibly rare. You can count them on your fingers, right? A few weeks ago, we saw Naaman, the, general, the Syrian general. He was healed of his leprosy. King Hezekiah has a terminal illness and God reverses that. All those who are bitten by poisonous snakes in Numbers 21, God heals them. Sarah and Hannah, they're barren and God opens their womb so they can have children. There are three resurrections. There are three people that come back from the dead in the Old Testament, if you remember. Elijah brought back the widow's son. Elisha brings back a widow's son, not to be outdone. And then that man who is thrown on the grave of Elisha, he comes back from the dead. All right? So you can count them on your fingers. But when Jesus shows up, miracles explode. The explosion of miracles was intended to demonstrate that God in human flesh had arrived in the world. Right? There was no natural explanation for them. There was no empirical explanation. There was no medical explanation. These were supernatural healings on the spot, instantaneous, complete, never seen before in all of history. They were a creative work by the Creator, done by a word or a touch. And Jesus did so many miracles, they couldn't all be recorded. Uh, the Apostle John tells us in chapter 21, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And so we just have a few of those miracles recorded for us. And we have to ask, why were those ones recorded? Because they're try Jesus is trying to teach us something. They're trying to show us the significance of these events. Now, I think you'll agree that Jesus performs this miracle in quite an unorthodox way, doesn't he? So he, he, he gets some mud, some, he spits on it, and then he rubs it in the guy's eyes. Now, in my book, that would generally make your sight worse, not better, if you rub mud in someone's eyes. And then he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. Now, the pool of Siloam was a long way away from where the blind man was. We saw that last week, right? It's a difficult walk, even if you can see, because it's a very steep walk down from the temple. 
Why didn't Jesus send him to a closer pool? Well, it's because Jesus is drawing attention to his identity in two ways. Firstly, the Gospel writer John points out that the name of the pool means sent. He tells us. He doesn't explain every name in his Gospels, but he explains this one. Why does he do that? Well, it's a play on words. Jesus sends the blind man to the pool called sent to heal him of his darkness because Jesus is the sent one from God, the one sent as the light of the world. He's drawing attention to himself. I'm the one sent from the Father. Secondly, this was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember we saw last week they had that water ceremony. Where did they get the water from? The Pool of Siloam. That's right. It's the last day of the festival. He's drawing our attention to that water that was taken from the Pool of Siloam because the pouring of the water symbolised that the, the, symbolized the pouring out of spiritual blessing in the time of the Messiah. And here's Jesus doing exactly what the prophet, prophets promised the Messiah would do. So Jesus is saying to everyone, you know, are you getting this? Right? Do you get it? And Jesus' manner of healing, I think, was a direct provocation of the Jewish leaders. By healing the man on the Sabbath... Jesus broke their Sabbath laws on a number of levels. Uh, they prohibited healing on the Sabbath unless a life was at stake, so he broke that rule. By spitting on the mud, Jesus made clay, which would have been constituted as working, so he broke that rule. They taught that contact with saliva made a Jew ceremonially unclean. But interestingly, in their teaching, in the hands of authorised people, Saliva was believed to become an instrument of blessing. So what, he's making the claim to have this spiritual authority. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some others claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. No need to debate, he says, it is me. Don't have to debate, I'm the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. That's all I can tell you. That's what happened. Where is this man, they asked him. You're asking me for directions? <laughs> I've only been able to see for a few moments, right? I've been blind my whole life. I don't know my way around here, right? You're asking me for direction where this man is? I don't know. Now, the Gospels record more cases of blind people being healed than any other miracle, right? Any other healing miracle. There are five separate accounts of blind people being healed. Six, uh, by Jesus, right? Six, if you count Jesus blinding Paul on the way to Damascus and then restoring his sight. Why is the miracle of restoring sight highlighted so much in the Gospels? I think it's because physical blindness illustrates so well spiritual blindness. In all the healing miracles in the Bible, only Jesus heals the blind. 
I think, to make the point that Jesus alone is the light of the world. Only Jesus can turn darkness into light from a physical standpoint and from a spiritual standpoint. The miracle of the blind man was not so much about restoring his physical sight as it was about enabling him to spiritually see Christ. We have, take a look with me in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and when he found him he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus didn't heal the man just so that he would be able to see a sunset, even though he would. His sight was restored so he could see Christ. The miracle in this man's life was that he was now empowered to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Only Jesus has the power to deliver people out of darkness, to open their eyes to the truth of who he is. So what we see in the healing of this man is, is a picture of all of humanity. It's an analogy of all of our salvation. Because this man is physically blind from birth. He's always lived in darkness. He is helpless to reverse that. And Jesus comes to him in mercy, heals his blindness, and his life is changed instantly. In the same way, humanity, you and I, were born spiritually blind. We groped around in spiritual darkness. We are helpless to reverse it, but Jesus, in his mercy, comes to you and to me. He searches for us, he finds us, and he reaches out to us in our spiritual darkness and he shines his light into our lives. And in an instant, in an instant our life is changed for all eternity. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So according to Jewish law, the only, the only one who could heal someone born blind was the Messiah according to their thinking. So according to the Pharisees' own beliefs, Jesus just performed a unique messianic miracle. But instead of declaring him the Messiah, they try to discredit his miracle. The miracle alone should have substantially changed their view of who Jesus is. It should have been enough to authenticate his claim to divinity. But the Jew Jewish leaders who had physical sight could not see who Jesus was. The only one who could see him as he truly was, was the blind man. And the only reason the blind man could see Jesus was because Jesus opened his eyes. The blind man who had only ever known darkness by the end of the event was the only one in the light and was supposed to see that irony. The blind man could see, those who could see were blind. And that could only be reversed through the intervention of Christ. Can you, this evening, can you say with this man, verse 25, one thing I know, that where I, whereas I was blind, now I see. Can you say that 
with this man. I want to finish with a story. Uh, there was an indigenous man named Ray Larangai. That's him. Uh, and he got completely drunk. He got high on marijuana and he had a serious fall with serious injuries in the Northern Territory outback. And his wife frantically drives him to Darwin Hospital, which is nine hours away. And tragically, Ray dies. Can we... Not that one yet, thank you. There's the punchline, but that's okay. So he dies in the intensive care unit. He's put into a body bag and he's wheeled into the morgue. But that's where the story starts to get strange. One of the nurses sees the body bag move and hears a voice coming out of the body bag saying, can someone open the zip and get me out? Ray had woken up inside the body bag and was thrashing around trying to open the zip. The nurse shouted, he's alive. And this is where we'll have the next one, thank you. And, and this is in the paper, drinker back from the dead. That's not something that happens every day, right? But the story gets even more extraordinary because Ray says that he had a life-changing experience when he was clinically dead. He says this, I was in a dark place, next slide I believe, I was in a dark place where I felt heat and heard people crying and yelling for help. Ray, Ray, help us, help us. They're grabbing me by my shirt to stop me there but I saw a light and started walking towards it and a bright figure said to me, I am Jesus and I am the light of the world. Now, Ray didn't know who Jesus was and so after this experience he uh, began to read the scriptures to find out who Jesus was and he committed his life to Jesus. Ray's wife says this, and now he's really gentle. So he changed big time. And God uses him to witness to other men in our community. Ray says, I thank God because only God can do that. I was a heavy drinker. I smoked a lot of ganja and I don't do that anymore. I follow the Lord. I tell other men in my community about God and how I found Jesus, the light of the world. Now, I'll be the first to admit that this is a story that's quite hard to get your head around. Uh, but if Jesus is who he says he is, God, then he can do something like this. Jesus had mercy on Ray at the very, very last moment, didn't he? I mean, you can't get any later than that. The final siren had already gone for Ray, right? Now, I've been part of deathbed experiences, but this is unheard of. Now, today's message is not wait until you're in a body bag before you come to Christ. That is not the take-home message. That is normally too late. In fact, that is always too late, except this story which I've heard about. But Jesus says, I am the way out of your darkness now. I'm the way out of the darkness of your sadness and sorrow now. I'm the way out of the darkness of eternal death now. I'm the way out of your, the darkness of your fear now, today. I'm the light in your darkest valley. I'm the light who illuminates the truth for you in this world of lies and fake news. I will guide you on the path. 
I am the light. I will guide you on the path. And I'll lead you through danger and worry. And I'm the light that exposes the sin of the world. And I'm also the only one that can deal with your sin. So come to me, the light of the world. One day, he says, I will return and I will get rid of all the darkness in this world once and for all. And you'll no longer see through a glass darkly, but you will see me as I am, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this jaw-dropping story of Jesus doing what no one else can do never seen before in all of history. And Lord, I pray that we would marvel at the miracle, but that it would not stop there, but we would understand the deeper reality to what this points to, that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light that will bring us salvation, and he's, but he's the light for all of us as Christians still. He is the light that will guide us on the right path that it will illuminate our path. He is the light that will guide us on the path, illuminate the truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would see Christ in this way, that we would come to him each day, the light of the world. Come to him for forgiveness. Come to him for guidance. Come to him for illumination. Come to him for life. I pray this in Jesus' name.